Um, we're going to be moving on to Second and Third John, which are very different books. As, but this morning we're going to be doing Second John, all of Second John. And before you get too excited or too concerned, it's about all of two paragraphs. So we will <laughs> see what we can do with these two paragraphs. Uh, so to start out this morning, I think what we're actually going to do is we're just going to read through the whole thing. Just all at once. We're just going to shotgun this thing. So if you don't mind uh, standing up out of, out of respect for uh, God's Word, that's something David and Adam have started doing. It's an older tradition, but I think it's a very neat one, so I'm going to keep in kind with it. So just starting on verse 1, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, and truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that you have heard from the beginning, that we ought love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, and such as one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. You should watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may find a full reward. And everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him or into your home or give him any greeting. And for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. All right. God, thank you for today. And thank you for this chance to look into these small epistles that some of us might just readily gloss over, but to have us pause and say that there's definitively something in here you would have to say to us that we should take note of. And I pray that as we move forward that you would uh, only enable me to speak exactly what you'd have me to speak. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Look at that. I don't even have to say it. You all just sit right back down. It's like clockwork at this point. <laughs> That's too much power for me. All right. So, like I said, we're, we're getting ready to move into kind of a, a shift here. Still the same sermon series, still this uh, living in the kingdom thing. But what I mean by a shift is the books are going to look very different from this point in. Right, so First John... A lot, of, a lot of you all, I'm sure, are very familiar with it, know it, love it. If not, everybody loves the one verse from 1 John where it says God is love, and everybody can quote that because it's one of your favorite things to talk about at church camp or just at Bible study or whatever. 
But the books take this strange shift from this big, long, wide, sweeping letter to these little, bitty, tiny, very personal things. And that's because 2nd and 3rd John are written for a very different purpose than 1st John. 1st John is this sort of complimentary letter, if you will. It's, it's sort of John's commentary on the gospel that he already wrote previously. And Adam did a great job pointing it out in his sermon last week, wrapping up first John. See, the Gospel of John says, I'm writing to you so that you might believe. And he's writing a very theologically heavy gospel for a reason, because in the later parts of the ADs, people started saying weird stuff about Jesus. Like, at this point, he's been gone for about 60 years, and now weird stuff's coming out about him. And I mean just wacky stuff, like... No, he, didn't, he never did this and that. Like, he, he poked a kid for playing with a termite, and, like, he died, and the weird stuff. It's like Elvis didn't die level kind of stuff. Them freezing Walt Disney's head kind of stuff. Right, so John is trying to clear some things up. And he writes this letter saying, here, and here's not all of it, because we could fill up books upon books upon books, but here's the stuff you need to know so that you might believe. So then he writes First John. And 1 John is much like a gospel in that it's not written to this particular church or that particular church. He wrote it to be a cyclical letter, right? So he hands it to one letter carrier, and then that letter carrier runs with it all over the place and takes it from church to church, and they read it aloud together a few times, and then it moves on to the next church so everybody can have a bit of the blessing of whatever word John would have to speak to people. So he's writing that to follow up with his gospel of saying, okay, I've told you why you should believe. Then First John says, Here how, here's how you should live since you believe. But second and third John are just letters. They're not these big sweeping things following up a gospel. They're tiny, personal letters. And this isn't a day whenever it's not as easy as saying, like, you up, and then you swipe, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Right? Tiny letters cost a lot of money and time, because you had to pay for the paper, you had to pay for the ink and the quill, and if you didn't have that, then you had to pay for leather, and then you had to pay for a thing, and then you had to carve it into the leather, and then you had to pay somebody to take it and walk it by foot to another place. And that's if that person didn't get robbed or murdered along the way or arrested for whatever weird reason. It was an expensive endeavor to send a letter. So he sends these little bitty ones. And it, there's not a whole lot in there, just through a quick pass by. He's got like two main commandments, love each other and stay away from people who are trying to muck up the church. Right? And he's like, why on earth would he bother why would, okay, not only why would John bother, but why would God bother, right? I'm an eternal being. He's got stuff to do, <laughs> bigger stuff to worry about than going, hey, John, right, write this obnoxiously small letter, go through a lot of difficulty to hand it to those people over there, right? And not only that, John, if you didn't notice, John's got to do this in kind of a cloak and dagger kind of a way. Right? He doesn't say, hey, this is John, you know, it's not like a business email kind of a thing. Just wanting to see what's happening over here. He says, from the elder to the elect lady. Right? And so there's this historical understanding he's writing to another church. And the main reason why we think he's writing to another church rather than just a lady, 
to some random lady. It's because in his salutation at the bottom, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So he's writing about Ephesus, where he's writing from, where he's working at, where he's sending out this letter from, and he's trying to get in contact with another church. Right? So on top of all the other stuff I told you about that makes this thing a logistical nightmare, on top of that, this is late first century. Right? This is about the 90s or so. And a lot of stuff has happened in the last 30 years if you are a Christian living in 90s AD. Right? So, and by the way, this morning I'm, I'm going to get a little technical. And I'm not getting technical because I like to hear myself talk. I'm getting technical for two reasons. One, I really, really, truly believe people want to hear deep, meaningful knowledge, and they just don't know it yet. <laughs> and two, because it's a little bitty letter, and I'm trying to prove to you that even this little bitty letter, you can unpack a lot from it, and you shouldn't just gloss right over it. But so at this point, um, and a little bit earlier in uh, Greco-Roman society, where John would have been handing these letters to, at about mm, 60 or so, there was this nice, nasty individual by the name of Nero. Nobody liked him. Nobody liked him for a lot of reasons. He had lots of really bad proclivities that were just gross, right? And not, not the smallest, not, well, not the most disgusting of which was he had this proclivity to invite the temple boys into private spaces, and everybody knew it. And he didn't care that everybody knew it. He was a gross man. <laughs> and somewhere in his rule over Rome, a part of Rome caught on fire, and it did lots and lots of damage. And Nero, uh, there's argument about whether he or one of his lackeys set the fire on purpose, or if it just sort of happened and he just took it as a happy accident, decided, I'm going to blame this on the Christians because I don't like these guys. And so all of Roman society started hating these people as rebel rousers because Nero had painted them that way. Then there's a little bit of a, a kerfuffle after Nero dies. Nobody knows who's supposed to be in charge. And then all of a sudden you get this guy. They start having weird names from here on in. So I'm going to try. I want to say his name is like Vespian, Vespian, something like Vespasian. There it is. It's weird. He decides, not only do I not like these people, I don't like the Jews down in Judea either. So he marches a bunch of people down there, and they decide, we're just going to destroy what's left of Jerusalem. And then we're going to totally level your temple. Because we tried giving you certain exemptions, we tried to play nice with you, and then this little, it's always like a little group of radical people that muck it up for everybody. This little group of Jews over here called the Zealots decided to poke the sleeping bear of Rome until they came in and destroyed everything. Right? And then you have an emperor named Titus, and then you get to Domitian. And Domitian, there's some argument about what all he did or didn't do, but regardless of what he did or didn't do, he had the nickname of being a murderer of a thousand Christians. So, whether it was or wasn't a thousand, I think we're missing the point. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to parse out from a historical standpoint. So, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. So John is writing a letter, not saying, hey, it's me, John, but writing saying, it's the elect elder sending a letter to this elect lady. Because he's trying to not let people 
get drug out in the streets, beat in the streets, thrown into local coliseum pits, whatever the Romans decided they wanted to do with a Christian they found that day. He's trying to make sure that if anything happens to this letter carrier from point A to point B, neither myself or any of the people in Ephesus or any of the people this letter is going to get arrested. Right? And who wants to be that letter carrier? There's nobody else to fall back on, so it's on you, my friend. So not only that, he has to write very cloak and dagger for a very small epistle. So all of that to say, if he wants all the work to do it, then we should take a bit of time to see what's actually in here instead of glossing over it and then going right back to 1 John because we like the story of God is love. And so... Another little, little technical thing here, and we know this is John, not because it says, hey, I'm John, but because John writes a lot of the same stuff. He sticks with a lot of the same themes. So if you look at, even though I said we're not going to go back to 1 John, I'm going to have to talk about 1 John. <laughs> we, if you look at 1 John, 1 John has a lot of similar sentences as the Gospel of John. John talks a lot about if you abide in the Son, then you abide in the Father, and then the Father abides in you. There's this mutual abiding thing happening. And that's directly quoting Jesus from his own gospel. Jesus gives a whole sermon series about what it means to abide in him, and he in you, and then the Father in him, and then the Father in you. He gives this big, long sermon about it. Right? There's Jesus qualifying what love actually is. He's saying, if you love me, then you're going to follow my commandments. And if you follow my commandments, that's because you're, you're of me and you're of the Father. Because the same way I'm of the Father, John parrots these exact phrases right back. And a thing that he really, really likes to do is point out how long these commandments have been around. Right? There's a particular phrase that pops up in John's works a lot. And it doesn't pop up in a whole lot of other works besides John's and maybe a couple of Paul's, but then one other book in the Old Testament, right? And he likes to say this little phrase here. I'm going to start at verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that you've had from the beginning, that we love one another. That's almost exactly what he writes in 1 John, and that's very similar to something that Jesus said in the Gospel. But it's not just very similar to the stuff that Jesus said, it's similar to John's Gospel in and of itself. He's pointing out that this isn't a brand new commandment. It's the one you've had all along. And he says, and he qualifies how long it's been around. He says, that you've had from the beginning. Alright, so Wade and I had some fun with these slides. Let's see if we can get them to work. So, here's the beginning of John's Gospel. Not 1 John, but the Gospel of John. Very first verse, 1-1. One, one. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And this is a sentence we're all really used to, but uh, this is loaded, in case you didn't know. Right? John is intentionally writing, In the beginning there was God. For a very particular purpose. He's working with people who have either converted from Judaism to Christianity, they're on the verge of converting, or at the very least they're incredibly familiar with Judaism and all of the stories that go along with it. 
So this sounds awful similar to another part of the Bible. Right? And I think we have that one up there too. Here's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Well, in John's Gospel, he goes on to say that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that through that Word, all things were created, and then this Word becomes flesh. So, Jesus, he's not just saying Jesus was there, he's saying Jesus was God, and was the agent through which all this stuff happened. Now, there are some people who, because there's always difficult people, <laughs> who like to say, if you can do John 1-1 one, one for me one more time, who like to say, oh, well, in the original Greek, like I said, we're getting technical. Hold on. I know where I'm going. <laughs> in the Greek, it says the word was, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Greek, there's no definite article there. There's, there's no saying that there was, the Word was with God. It just says, a Word was with God, or this Word was a God. Like Jehovah's Witness and people like that try to say, oh, well, the Greek doesn't mean that's God. It just means he was like some other deity thing. Right? Well, actually... There's another Greek reading ruled where that is a load of baloney. And it definitely says <laughs> Jesus um, is God right there. And if nothing else, if you want to try to play, play funny with the language rules, here's what you can't play funny with. I'm going to give Wade whiplash here. Can you go back to Genesis 1-1 for me now? <laughs> Whatever it says right there, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word there for created in Hebrew, there's multiple different words to make something or to create something, right? There's one in the sense of erecting a building. There's one in the sense of like having a child or like begetting. And then you've got this, which is its own animal. This Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word bra. And bra has this very specific idea with it that this is a sort of creation that only God can do. We don't know what it is exactly. We, we can't really give you a good idea of it, but it's something that only he can do. And this was a very clear understanding because if you look several years later, putting it lightly, several years later, whenever David writes in Psalm 51 about his sin with Bathsheba and he asks God to create in me a clean heart, he says, Barah knowing that whatever he's done to his own heart is something only God can fix. So you can try to play around with words all you want, but you can't play around with the understanding that this act of creation is something only God can do. And John is deliberately saying Jesus was what made that happen. And so whenever John likes to say, hey, love one another, the exact same way you've heard it from the beginning. He's not just kind of saying, hey, back whenever we started doing this shindig, at, at, they would, I don't know what they would have called it at the time, but it wasn't zero AD at the time. I don't know, that was some narcissistic emperor who decided that's when time began, whenever I was born, probably what happened. But at that, he's not saying when this all started with Jesus, he's, well he is, but not whenever Jesus was here, he's saying, no, this love commandment has been around even longer than that. It's an ancient command that precedes 
everything. So whenever he says, love one another, he's not giving you this sort of fluffy, like Beatles, all you need is love kind of a thing of like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't act this way? Wouldn't it be nice if we all kind of did A, B, C, and D and not all the bad stuff over there? And then the world could be a better place. Wouldn't it be nice? Well, that's not what John is saying. Right? Because if you remember a few weeks back, David qualified what love is. Right? And it's not just this chemical reaction you have in your brain that tells you, hey, that person, that place, that thing seems attractive to me and I want it. Right? That's just like an animal instinct we all have. He says the type of love, he told you all that the type of love you have, it's a disciplined decision. It's an active engagement that you have to be a part of. Right? And it's something that you have to be committed to in order for it to actually come to fruition, right? And so we now have got John telling us, here's what love is. And not only is love a committed, disciplined decision and a self-sacrificial thing, John is going to be qualifying why he's giving you this commandment to love. Here's what it is, and here's why it is. Right? And in a time, whenever it costs money, blood, toil, it costs everything to write two sentences, one of those two sentences was to remind people that you're supposed to love each other, just like God said from the beginning. And for those people, I'm deadly certain it's difficult to see. Right? I'm fairly certain that when you read the Old Testament, whenever a lot of people read the Old Testament, Christians or non-Christians alike, it's hard to see this commandment being there from the beginning whenever you have people making a dumb decision and mucking up all of creation. When you have two brothers being asked to do something simple, give a sacrifice to God, and one of them decides to knock the other one over her head with a rock. Then you've got people acting so horribly that God decides he's going to flood the earth. And then you've got people acting so horribly that God decides I've given them a chance. Now, Israel, you need to go in there and claim that land. It's hard to see whenever Israel is in exile for hundreds of years, and it's harder still to see whenever a guy shows up doing miraculous works, saying it's all based on this one action of love, and then they murder him. But what John is trying to say is that love isn't just this fanciful little notion that God kind of conceived of one day. It said, hey, wouldn't it be nice if I changed up the way I did things? And then he sends Jesus because he changes his mind. God didn't just kind of conceive of it one day and go, that's pretty nice. What if I had my people start doing that instead? No, oh, because in 1 John he writes, God is love. He's saying that this is something that is integral to God's very nature. We get a lot of these details throughout the Bible. There's a lot of times where it says, God is, is wisdom, God is justice, God is this, or God is that. These are all small parts 
of the whole of God that we can't understand. But whenever John says, I'm telling you to love each other, and then he says, it's from the beginning, it's not, don't, don't be mean to each other. That's, that's no fun when people are mean to each other. No, he's, he's trying to remind people that we have been given this command from the source of all things in the universe. And this command has been there since he created all things, inferring that this loving aspect of God was part of what spurred him to make everything in the first place. So God, in his love, creates everything because he loves everything before he even creates it. And then because he refuses to be separated from all these things that he loves, he comes here, shows us how to love, and get that initial relationship of love with him and creation and all of us, all of that thrown back into the loop together, at least a little glimpse of it. And he says, now do that. No pressure, but do that. So whenever you read these little books, when you read these small sentences that you've heard 101 times, and you just want to gloss over them, because you're like, oh, it's the same thing he said like three or four different times right now. Yeah, Jews repeat stuff for a reason, because it's important. So Jesus says to love, here's what love is. Now just remember, the why in loving isn't because wouldn't it be nice if, you know, the world was a better place, but because you have been invited to take part in the nature of God, and the very nature of God is a loving God. And he's been that way since the beginning. And so when you're given this command, you need to take hold of it and treat it for what it is. It's not a toy. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's, in a sense, I'm trying to find some weird, not hippie-ish, ethereal way of saying it, but I can't. This is, this is the destiny of the universe you've been handed. And so whenever you've got these times of, I really, because you know, you're given the commandment to love one another, and then somebody just goes and does something dumb, and you're like, do I gotta love that person right there? I really have to. They're dumb. <laughs> like, and you've got those people that even if they don't do anything necessarily wrong, they're just flustering to love. All right? If you talk to my mother for longer than five minutes, somehow, some way, it's going to come up that I am an argumentative person. Amen. Then if you talk to my wife for less than five minutes, she will agree. <laughs> And I know at multiple occasions in those relationships, I have been incredibly difficult to love. And yet there's something, there's something in those loves that I'm receiving, those two distinct forms of love, that's not just a chemical reaction, right? People just try to say, well, we're just the sum of our parts, right? Okay. The sum of your parts 
is, once again, it's just a chemical reaction. It means the love you would have for a child, for a friend, for this person or for that person is no more special or significant than, say, like a mama bear protecting baby bear. And though I, as amused as we would all be to see my mom just rip a hiker apart for messing with me, <laughs> There's a very, very different thing at the, at the nature of that love, right? And so whenever John says love, he's not also just saying any kind of love. He's also using a very specific word. Now, I know you all have heard this at least a few different times if you've been in church for longer than like two seconds. There's four different words in the Greek language for love. You've got eros, which is that chemical reaction kind of love of that thing is attractive and I want it. Whether it's a person, an item, whether it's food, it's a very base, like, gut reaction. I want that. Right? It's where we get uh, the name of the god of love, eros. It's where we get the English words like erotic. It's just a natural reaction kind of love. Right? Then you've got storge. Storge is the kind of love you show to a family member. It's that obligatory kind of love. Right? It's like whenever, <laughs> I love watching little kids whenever they have to explain why they have to love each other. Well, because you have to. Because I'm your sister. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's that. <laughs> it's super obnoxious, but it's an obligatory love and you've got to do it because you are destined to do it. Like, it's, it's got that kind of thing to it. And then you've got um, phileo, which is the kind of love you show to other people to your friends, to your elders. It's a respectful, cordial, very hospitable kind of love. And it comes with a sense of duty to it as well. And then you've got this fourth word, which is agape. And everybody just kind of describes it as, oh, well, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the God love. And we don't really qualify that other than just saying it's the God love. Like it's agape as some sort of special little club or like thing you get to do whenever you walk in the doors of church. You know, it's like a mason handshake. Nobody knows what it is, but it's the agape love, right? Well, actually, whenever John, John tells us, not only does John tell us, and then David gave us a very good summary of it, but just to reiterate on it, um, John literally says that you are love one another and that we walk according to his commandments. So whenever you, whenever you actually define out the word agape, and people who weren't Christians were trying to define what specifically it meant after Christianity had blown up, and the best way they could summarize it is either a love for reason, so you love the logic behind God, or it is a love for all of the things that encompass God. And he gives that in return, is the understanding. That's what he feels toward his people. A love for them and everything that encompasses them. So whenever we go through these books, whenever you read through John's stuff, Whenever you're in your Sunday school lessons, your life groups, you know, whenever you're doing a house church or you're just trying to read through a Bible story on your own or anything like that, I, I really want us to just sort of stop 
playing around with the idea of love. And we, and we say it 101 times at least, like, oh, well, the word love has gotten all watered down and this and that, and yada, yada, yada. But we, don't, we still don't do much with it. You know, because we throw some random vague word like agape at it and say that's something God does and this and that. And we take it and we, or we take it, we just say, ah, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if the world was this way? But we all know that heaven can't actually come to earth in that kind of a way. So it's just going to be some unattainable thing we put on a pedestal and keep pointing at. And hopefully people like it enough that they can come in the room and point at it with us. Kind of a thing. John is saying this is integral to God. It's integral to the foundation of the universe, and it's integral to the destiny of the universe that he ultimately ends up writing about later on in Revelation. Because when he writes in Revelation, he's talking about all things coming back together to be made whole and one with God. All these things are going to be made new, and that God is sort of the source in Christ, is sort of the source of everything in Revelation. All of it is funneling in one initial direction. And that's because all things are going to be made new by this agape love, whether you like it or anybody likes it or not. But it's very easy to lose track of it. Because he spends the other part of the letter saying other people like to sneak in and muck all that up. Right? Whenever he says he's working to keep our reward, he's not talking about like heaven or salvation or this or that. He's saying if we, if we aren't careful with what love is, it's very easy for people to come in and twist and warp love into something that it's not. And we can't let people do that because this is a part of who God is. And so when you think about loving each other when you read the commandments to love one another. Remember that Scripture and David have now told you what it is. It's a self-sacrificial thing that you've got to work at. You've got to choose to do it. But don't also lose sight of why you're supposed to do it. Because this is a part of God, and you are invited to take part in God himself. So, I am, uh, I'm going to pray this out. And I would ask whether it's um, Adam or Mike or whoever would like to take, receive anybody during the response time. And the musicians can come and, and lead us in that time of response. I'm, I want to pray us out. And in, in this particular time, whatever, whatever it is you might feel led to do, if you don't know Christ and you want to know who Christ is, if you want to know what it is to take part in God and be a part of his people, and you want to learn more about this integral, deep, and eternal love, then there are a number of people here who would love to talk to you about that. 
if you just need to sit with God and think over how you've been loving people or why you've been loving people, then do that. If this was just a nice refresher for you because this is what you've been aspiring to all along, then just worship with all your heart. Do it. I don't care what you do, just so long as you do it with God. Dear Lord, we thank you for all the things that you'd have to say, even in short books, that in just a few words you can remind us of the eternal scale in which you move everything. That even your smallest little movements or, or jots have profound effects. And for inviting us to take place in those profound effects. And then challenging us to remember why you've invited us to do those things in the first place. And that in hearing love is a deep, eternal command that's just a part of your nature that we wouldn't shy away from that in all of its intensity, that you would lead us to be more mature people and engage with that. And I pray that your spirit would do exactly what you think ought be done. and that you could just embolden and equip everybody in this room to go throughout the next part of life, whatever that be, engaging with the fullness of your love and never forgetting how long your command to love has been there. In Jesus' name, amen.